Thank you, thank you Matt and thank you to the conference organisers for inviting me to, to give this talk. I'm, I'm really grateful to you. Uh, my title might sound like it masks a declaration or a proposal. Education is essentially child's play or education ought to be child's play. However, if that's the case, it's a false impression. In truth, there is some polemical intent behind my title, motivated by my feeling that on the one hand, education is too serious, and on the other, my reservation about making my lessons fun by asking students to play guessing games or do quizzes or indulge in role play which as far as I can see, and certainly if it were me that were asking them to do that, would be about as far from the vital and joyous experience of children's play as it's possible to get. <laughs> Nevertheless, despite its polemical side or undertow, it's, this talk's really driven by more of a question. What is the place of play in education? Still, even, even that sounds misleading. Well, it does to me, because I, I know what's coming. <laughs> Insofar as it still invites the expectation that I'm going to make some recommendations in order to improve education for our students, then play should be used more frequently or more, I don't know, seriously. Well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, thinking about it, my university would like me to make those sorts of recommendations. Uh, they, they're always on the uh, lookout for impact potential, uh, but they are going to be sadly disappointed with this, this talk. Uh, before I tell you what it is I'm going to say, or what I'm going to try to say, it might be helpful to observe that in part, the uncertainty and indirectness of my response to the question about the place of play in education can be attributed to the ambiguity that attaches to the part we suppose both education and play to play in existence. On the one hand, education and play are both fundamental phenomena of human life. They are among the great a prioris of our being, inasmuch as we cannot be taught to learn and we do not need to be taught to play. On the other hand, we tend to regard them both as childish things, the importance or centrality of which diminishes as we mature and come to full possession of our faculties. That's not to say that education isn't a serious business, a point I'll come back to in a moment. Nor for that matter play. Much ingenuity is devoted to developing toys. Particularly, and we, I mean, we go to, I, I'm, I'm a parent, and I can certainly say, you know, I, I devote, a, a, or have devoted a considerable amount of my income to the purchase of toys for my children. Uh, particularly what are often deemed educational toys as well. Uh, but for their part, I think children will happily play with a box that the toy came in, or a stick. Still, the great emphases of our existence seem to lie elsewhere. Virtue, dignity, honour, Power and prosperity are the ends of life. They define our aspirations. They are the mark of character and profession. One doesn't aspire to be a player, and the person who plays is denounced as puerile. As for teaching, which is rightly regarded as a profession, the old saw still has it that those who can do, whilst those who can't teach. These judgments or prejudices are reflected in the fact that the discipline 
that deals with the most fundamental of human matters, the basic questions of existence, namely philosophy, accounts them or accords them but a minor place. The philosophy of education is a lesser philosophical discipline, while to my knowledge at least there isn't even a place in the canon for the philosophy of play. Any response to the question I pose myself about the place of play in education will have to negotiate these ambiguities and ambivalences. So in what follows, rather than answering the question, I try to say why I think it's a good question to ask. I also try to suggest what are the historical philosophical constraints that condition our response to it. And I try to suggest what its philosophical significance is. Well, why even ask after the place of play in relation to education? The question might seem redundant, for as I've just said, and as everyone in any case knows, education is a serious business. It is, after all, necessary for the continued existence of society. Subject to death and born before our behaviours are fixed, the know-how we need to act in and upon a world into which we are cast must be passed on to us by the preceding generation. Lacking this, we would not have the wherewithal to survive. As Protagoras realised, the peculiar virtue of humanity is that these two signal biological frailties, mortality and prematurity, combine to its advantage. Lacking the fixed nature, for example, that makes a chick behave like a chick within a few hours of its birth, the human must actively communicate the know-how requisite to its survival to subsequent generations. At the same time, the very need to learn to be human means that what the human makes of this know-how, both in the sense of how it understands it and the uses to which it puts it, is itself not absolutely fixed. It's for this reason, so it's said, that humanity has such a prodigious capacity not only to adapt to its world, but to invent the means to actively change it, to master its world and itself. What I've just called know-how, the common stock of knowledge and experience particular to a culture, society or civilization, can obviously take its own organization and transmission as its object, and through reflection upon it, seek to order it to particular ends. Plato is often credited with being the first to do this. He saw that for a state to provide a good life for its citizens requires a deliberate ordered system of education capable of cultivate, cultivating both individual and civic virtues, discovering and developing personal capacities and training them so that they connect with the activities of others. One might suppose then, according to what is in effect a very classical determination of the function of education, that the place of play within it is fixed. If education is indeed a serious matter, if it serves so serious an end, then play can only be permitted a subordinate role in relation to it. As Ruskin, for example, says, echoing Aristotle, a school should be a place where leisure is well spent. Of course, since power resides not with the philosophers, as Plato had hoped or dreamt it would, but with political or economic decision makers, and since politics has in fact been reduced to techniques of economic management, the ideology which fixes the ends that education serves, competition, better distribution of costs, enterprise, productivity, this ideology has rendered education an increasingly serious business, and the leisure required to learn has been replaced by the pressures of performance for pupils and teachers alike. The subordination of education to purely economic ends, to the rationality of performance, 
has been held to have induced a crisis in education. It's usual to deplore this, but in truth, what sort of crisis it is, is open to debate. In her 2010 manifesto, Not for Profit, Martha Nussbaum has given a well-known account of this crisis that expresses clearly and powerfully one side of the debate. And as we will see, her argument is as instructive for what it assumes as for what it says. Her point is one with which most of us are familiar. The subordination of education to the profit motive endangers the arts and humanities. They're endangered because they're deemed less profitable than science and technology. The latter bring, or are supposed to bring, more profit to the universities, to the state, and to the individual. Nussbaum's concern, however, is that the arts and humanities are crucial to democracy, which, like John Dewey before her, she conceives as more than a form of government, but instead, and primarily, as a mode of associated living, of conjoint communicated experience. Science and technology, she argues, may or may not thrive without democracy. Democracy, however, will wither without the arts and humanities. For the faculties of thought and imagination, faculties that make us human, that make our relationships with others rich human relationships, and not simply ones of use and manipulation, and which are consequently essential to our democratic impulses, are faculties cultivated by the arts and humanities. Drawing on the example of Socrates and the arguments of Plato, Rousseau and Dewey to make patent the critical condition of education, Nussbaum's analysis has a breadth of historical and philosophical reference that embodies the virtues that she extols in the arts and humanities. The ability to think critically, the ability to transcend local loyalties, and the ability to approach sympathetically the predicament of another person. Without doubt, it's an impassioned defence of a certain idea of education, a call to arms, as it were. Nevertheless, one might well suspect the capacity Nussbaum attributes to the arts and humanities to cultivate successfully or unproblematically such virtues if the profit motive has already managed, as she claims it has, to take such a hold upon both our institutions of education and the hearts and minds of parents and pupils the world over. Likewise, one might also doubt the efficacy of the appeal to the value of democracy as a response to the cutting loose of education from the ideas which for so long had guided it, the emancipation of reason, the realization of human freedom, autonomy, enlightenment, when democracy is itself of a piece with those ideas. In essence, then, it seems to me, Nussbaum does not go far enough. Rather than simply pointing to external causes of the crisis in education, such as the renaissance of advanced liberal capitalism or neoliberal capitalism, the valorization of individual enjoyment of goods and services or credit-fueled consumerism, the emergence of new markets and newly dominant economies, and a global economic crisis that began in 2008. Rather than appealing, simply appealing to those, it's necessary to consider what renders education and the coordinate values and ideas that have informed the conception and practice of education susceptible to being affected by such causes. How then should we think of education? We perhaps need to go further, to go back further to the roots of the idea of education. In the first volume of his monumental three-volume study of ancient Greek culture, Paideia, the ideals of Greek culture, Verne Jaeger declared it, and I quote, impossible to have any educational purpose or knowledge without a thorough and fundamental comprehension of Greek culture, end quote. Jaeger justifies his declaration with a canard that would now doubtless cause some discomfort. The Greeks, he claims, and I quote again, constitute a fundamental advance on the great peoples of the Orient and a new stage of development of society. However highly 
we value the artistic, religious and political achievements of earlier civilizations, there is a qualitative difference between those achievements and that of the Greeks. Properly speaking, according to Jaeger, the term civilization is improperly used of such nations or people, and it would be better to speak of them constituting the prehistory of civilization. Because, and I quote again, what we can truly call civilization, the deliberate pursuit of an ideal, does not begin until Greece. Thus, our history, and if you, in case you're wondering, uh, for Jaeger, writing in 1934, our meant that group of nations that made up the, uh, the inhabited world known to the Greeks and Romans. Our history begins with Greece. Greece is our arche, our spiritual origin. Between, uh, between Rome, Greece and ourselves, there is an inner spiritual kinship, a profound, true historical connection, a community of origins and ideals. Through it, a true understanding and genuinely creative encounter is possible and, so Jaeger thought, needed. It's needed because not only is it the non-ecumenical peoples that have no culture, the Hellenocentric nations have effectively lost the culture the Greeks bequeathed unto them. A sign of this, if a sign were needed, is our readiness to speak of Chinese, Indian and Egyptian cultures, although there are none. Such a liberal use of the term reveals a degeneration of the idea of culture, which, coupled with education, Jaeger uses to translate the Greek paideia. It's degeneration to a general anthropological concept, rather than denoting a willed spiritual ideal. Contemporary culture is a weakened thing, the final metamorphosis of the Greek ideal, Jaeger says. It's not so much paideia as a vast, disorganized external apparatus for living. Consequently, Jaeger says, if a creative encounter is to take place, it's not a matter of judging the Greeks by our standards, because our culture, or what passes for culture, cannot impart any value to the Greek ideal. Instead, it needs transformation by it. The Greeks, Jaeger says, had a sense of the whole. They apprehended sensuously and intellectually the unity of all things. For this reason, despite Plato's hostility, or apparent hostility, towards art, Jaeger argues for the unity of art and philosophy in ancient Greek paideia. The theoria of Greek philosophy was deeply and inherently connected with Greek art and Greek poetry, he says, for it embodied not only rational thought, the element which we think of first, but also, as the name implies, vision, which apprehends every object as a whole, which sees the idea in everything, namely the visible pattern. This priority of the whole, this disposition towards the universal, laid its stamp on Greek education. With the Greeks, education became more than the kinds of system for training the young to perform specific duties found among non-Hellenic peoples. It became a means, an artistic means, for the deliberate willed creation of an ideal, a higher type of man, Jaeger says. Just as the Greek artists contrived to represent the human body in free, untrammeled motion, and attitudes, not by copying a number of casually selected positions, but by learning the universal laws governing its structure, balance, and movement. So the philosophers discovered the freedom, spontaneity, versatility, and variety of the individual through the discovery of the objective standards of human nature. Emboldened and provided with a new certainty of thought and action by this discovery, they used it as a formative force in education and set about shaping and fashioning the living man much as the potter molds clay and the sculptor carves stone into preconceived forms. 
thereby deliberately moulding human character in accordance with an ideal. For Jaeger, then, the peculiar genius of Greek paideia lay in its humanism. For humanism is, he says, the process of educating man into his true form, the real and genuine human nature. There is a profound resonance between Jaeger's account of paideia and Nussbaum's idea of education. Now, unfortunately, due to lack of time, it's not possible to demonstrate this now. Instead, it will have to suffice to observe that, despite differences of nuance and a broader frame of reference, for the ideal of a democratic education for Nussbaum invites an extension of spiritual sympathy beyond Western nations. For Nussbaum, as for Jaeger, or Jaeger's Greeks, the essence of education lies in the idea of humanitas and the deliberate cultivation of a human ideal, a process which Herder called Bildung. For Nussbaum, this ideal is the democratic citizen who, by virtue of their education, is equipped with Socratic capacity for self-examination. For Jaeger, it is the whole human being. This cultivation of the whole human, which for Jaeger equates to paideia, entails the self-realization of all the capacities of human being, which are precisely those intrinsic human or humanistic goods that Nussbaum sees being eroded by the narrow instrumentalism of the contemporary educational agenda. As powerful as is the pull of this idea, of the idea of democracy, particularly to Nussbaum's liberal American audience, and as important as it is to safeguard human rights, the current reminder of how much can be justified in the name of democracy is salutary. For this reason, there is undoubted force to the argument that open adherence to the criterion of performance has its advantages. As Jean-Francois Lyotard points out, it excludes in principle recourse to a metaphysical discourse. It requires the renunciation of fables. It demands clear minds and cold wills. It can, he reminds us, even count severity amongst its advantages. Rights and hardships are, in and of themselves, irrelevant. What matters is how addressing them, or failing to address them, affects the system's performance. What this criterion does, then, is disabuse us of our naiveties, and it awakens us to a reality that is already conditioned by its logic. From the perspective of performance, what really matters in education is not whether it nourishes the spirit and cultivates the soul by nurturing the humanistic and democratic virtues of sympathy and impartial, independent, critical judgment. What matters is its capacity to improve efficiency, to increase output and impact for less input, whatever those variants or variables represent. What it also means is a system of education that is no longer concerned with the formation of a general model of life and the dissemination of ideals. Instead, what is needed is the teaching of skills or the creation of so many doctors, engineers, administrators, teachers, and so on. And as many of us in this room know, the delivery of this training is subject to the same logic of performance and relentless efficiency. Similarly, it's not asked of our research what it's good for, but what's it worth, and how long will it take us to realise a return upon it? Well, what's to be done? How to resist this logic, if at all? We can't fail to recognise the capacity of the system to capitalise upon what opposes it, to turn it to its advantage. The current return to character in education is a case in point. There's no need to doubt that that return comes following a recognition on the part of pedagogues and philosophers of education of the costs entailed by the instrumentalization of education over the last 50 years in the most highly developed nations. However, that recognition 
was only in part motivated by an acknowledgement of the problem of yoking education exclusively to the pursuit of individual and national economic gain. In part, it's been driven by a recognition that character itself is now the only truly saleable commodity, the only viable capacity that labour power has in the era of flexible capitalism, where for ordinary workers, there are no jobs for life. For under this mode of capitalism, what is utile and profitable for employers are not fixed skills, but virtues, in inverted commas, such as resilience and adaptability, flexibility. Now, it's been suggested that since play gives expression to our most vital creative impulses, since it is the spontaneous or immediate expression of a life-affirming joy of intrinsic value, intrinsic value, a renewed emphasis on play in education would serve to remedy the ills of our increasingly instrumental technocratic civilization. To which the objection might be made that if it was simply a matter of making education more playful, then the remedy would have already taken effect a long time ago, since not only has play been incorporated into education, but no civilization has devoted so much time and energy to play as ours, which is incorporated not only into education, but into town and city planning, made the matter of therapies associated with national identities and become something around which we organize our days, our weeks, our years, our lives. What then can we learn from play and children? A moment ago, I noted the resonance between Jaeger's and Nussbaum's accounts of education, a resonance that makes one think of the spiritual accord which for Jaeger ties the Hellenocentric cultures to Greece. In a sense, then, Jaeger is right. In order to think critically about the current predicament of education, it is necessary to go back to the Greeks. But not because we need to return to them as to a perpetual fountain of youth in which we might play in order to revitalize ourselves. It's no more a case of overcoming the contemporary experience of education by returning to the ancient than of appealing to the contemporary experience in ignorance of the ancient. What is needed is a delimitation of both that shows that they are historical and finite, and which thereby opens up the possibility of a different experience of education from within the tradition that both sustains and constrains them and us. Only then can we see that what is has been different, and so it can again be so. I'm taking a drink of water now, not just because my mouth's dry, but because I've, I've got to get my, my, my mouth and tongue around some Greek. Uh, <laughs> and the, the problem is, all of these terms are going to sound exactly the same to you, so you're not really going to know what I'm talking about, I think. But, uh, hopefully, hopefully it won't be too opaque. There's a close association in the Greek between education and play, marked in the series of terms for play, Paizo, game, paideia, an education, paideia, and a child, pais, all of which share the same root syllable, pi. And, and this is a sentence I never envisaged myself ever saying at, 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 in front of anybody else or even saying at all. According to David Farrell Krell, <laughs> The, the etymological, can you edit that bit later? Yeah. The etymological, <laughs> these etymological links reflect that for the Greeks, play, paizo, is what a child, pais, does. He continues, anything suited to children is described as paideos, whether it be a game, paideia, or their education, paideia. In sum, it could be said, that children need educating and children play. And this invites us to posit a connection between education and play. However, before we consider if and how this lexical chain helps us understand the connection between education and play, 
as opposed to indicating a merely adventitious association, it's necessary to exercise some caution and refrain from being too easily seduced by etymology. For the claim that children play and the claim that children need educating are both problematic. It's far from the case that it is only children who play and exclusively children who are educated. On the one hand, adults do not cease to learn, even if often they learn incidentally and as a byproduct of their associations and activities, whereas children must be educated expressly if they are to, be, if they are to participate meaningly and productively in a common life. Most adults have already acquired the skills needed for this end, so if they undertake a course of education or if they're required to do so, it's either further training to ensure they remain economically useful or to make gainful use of their leisure time. On the other hand, we suppose play belongs properly to the being of the young because at first glance, adult life no longer harbours much of the exuberant innocence of childhood play. Duty, work and care erode the blithe vitality of the young. But it's not true that the child plays most. The adult plays as much, but in a less obvious way. We think that adults don't play because we moralise playing. We want to suppose both play and the child are innocent. The child plays, the adult with an adult's eye to advantage schemes, connives and gambles. However, we purify play at the cost of disingenuously disambiguating it, since we want to suppose that children's play is less harmful, less cunning, less concealed, more honest and open than the denatured, secretive and concealed play of the adult world. The adult, having learned that things can be made to appear otherwise than they are, or at least having learned to put that knowledge to use, plays upon appearances with serious intent, if not malice aforethought. But in truth, education, if education stretches from cradle to grave, play reaches all the way from the baby throwing its cotton reel out of its pram to the sublimity of tragedy. For this reason, uh, and again, I'm unsure of the pronunciation of this name, uh, Johan Huizinga introduces his great anthropological study, Homo Ludens, a study of the play element in culture, by saying that playing is as important as reasoning and making among human activities. Allowing that not all human activity is play, it is nonetheless the case, he argues, that play is not a distinct element in culture, but an essential aspect of it. In fact, it is possible to go further and say that all culture originates in play, so that the great archetypal activities of human society are permeated by play from the start. Should we suppose that there is no intrinsic connection between education, play and the child sufficiently specific as to be significant? After all, adults as much as children play and adults learn as much as do children. And if education is linked to play in a way that's still to be determined, it's no different to the other great archetypal activities of culture ritual, myth, law, religion, and philosophy. However, if one should not be too easily misled by etymological false friends, one should not, for all that, simply ignore what etymology indicates. For if play is a primordial phenomenon, irreducible to anything else, as Hutzinger argues, then we should instead see such etymological links as giving voice to a set of elective affinities a web of culturally conditioned associations. What then are the constraints that condition the connection between education, play and the child that serve to bind them together more or less tightly and compel them to show themselves in a particular light? In Book 8 of The Politics, Aristotle sets out the relation between education and play in a way that has subsequently become canonical and commands considerable consensus, even if, at the time, Aristotle was contesting arguments of earlier thinkers and the opinions of eminent contemporary figures. The question Aristotle is answering is the question of what the system of education should be and how it's to be brought into operation. But the crux of his argument revolves around what one should do when at leisure. The term leisure translates the Greek skole, 
It appears in Greek in the fifth century and originally meant free time or spare time in the sense that Prometheus, chained to his rock, observes that he has rather more scole than he might have liked. but about which mortals might ordinarily complain of its scarcity rather than its abundance. Towards the end of the century, under the scrutiny of the philosophers, the issue of the proper or best use of scole came to prominence. And as a result, it came to be identified as the time required for self-improvement. With Aristotle, there is a further decisive shift. For him, leisure is not merely a prerequisite for the good life, or even a component thereof. It is the activity constitutive of the good life. Happiness, eudaimonia, seems to lie in leisure, he says, in scole. That's from the uh, Nicomachean Ethics. The question, then, is whether paideia, play, an activity that lies outside of work, is definitive of the good life whether, that is, we can make the best use of our free time when we play. The question of how best to spend our free time arises in the politics in response to the specific issue of the educative value of music. The other subjects usually studied, reading and writing, physical training and drawing, have an obvious utility in everyday life, Aristotle observes. But the grounds for including music among the subjects taught is not so clear. Some participate in music because of the pleasure it provides, while others say music is fundamental in education because the aim of education is not just to fit people for work, but also to make them able to use leisure well. Hence, it is necessary to answer the question about the proper activities of leisure. Aristotle immediately and abruptly dismisses play. For that, he says, would be to make play the object of living, our end in life, which is unthinkable. His assurance here hides the fact that play is, as he admits in the Nicomachean Ethics, a plausible candidate for the good life, the end of all our activities, since we choose it, or appear to choose it, for its own sake, and because tyrants, who can do, and I thought here of Donald Trump, can do as they want, elect to spend their time playing. The historian Aristobulus tells us that Sardanapalus had inscribed on his tomb the legend, drink, eat, play, to which Aristotle responds that tyrants are powerful, not virtuous, and opines that it would be childish and foolish to suppose that we work and labor in order to play, when in fact we ought to play to facilitate our engagement in more serious matters. The latter is the argument he gives in the politics. Play, he says, has its uses. It is a way of resting. People do not work to rest, but rest in order to work, since they cannot work continuously. In this sense, play is a restorative therapy, a pharmacaea, remedying the labour and strain of work. Aristotle's argument that one does not work in order to play, but that one works for the sake of leisure and one plays in order to work, establishes the parameters or even the template for thinking about education and play. The end of education is to serve a life of leisure well spent. It is itself a serious matter because it prepares one for the serious business of being a scholar, as we might say, and it does so by the cultivation of the intellect. Hence, Aristotle is able to claim that while children are learning, they are not playing. To be sure, to the extent that children play, it's not possible for Aristotle to entirely exclude play from education. However, since the end of education is preparation for a happy life, and since the kind of pleasure afforded by play is slavish, and no one attributes happiness to the life of a slave, its inclusion is heavily qualified. After all, if a city is to provide an education for its citizens, it should not aim to cultivate slaves. If play is to be used, then, it's only to be used in the education of the very young. Even then, its employment is hedged with what subsequently become classical caveats. Strictly speaking, up until five years of age, children are too young to be taught anything. Their souls, 
or the intellectual capacity of their souls being insufficiently developed, too imperfect for such an end. Nevertheless, they should not be left entirely to their own devices. They should be encouraged to exercise, developing their bodies by playing games. Of course, the games they should be encouraged to play are the kind of games worthy of free men. That is, they should be neither laborious nor unsystematic, and they should consist in playing at or rehearsing what they will later be doing in earnest. For Aristotle, in essence, education is serious. Consequently, it's dissociated from play, which is not. Play is something that children and tyrants do for its own sake, but which laborers and workers do in order to relax so as to do more work. It can be admitted within education, albeit within limited parameters, as a preparation for life. Otherwise, it's therapy for sick souls. In other words, for Aristotle, play is a peripheral phenomenon, confined to its opposition to the serious stuff of life. It consumes childhood, but its hold upon us diminishes as we mature. Labour, work, action and contemplation are the defining activities of our existence, while play is neither praxis nor poesis nor diarrhoea. Viewed in this way, it has the same relation to life as does sleep. It is, as Eugen Fink has it, the relaxation of the spirit that life requires, but which is simply the backing to life. It is, in short, denied any significance of its own and is unable to move us to a different experience of education. If play is not serious for Aristotle and of limited educational significance, the opposite's the case for Plato. Without doubt, Plato, the arch-educator, is a player. Hermann Gundert, in his article To Play with Plato, views Plato's work as revolving around play. According to him, it's accorded an increasingly prominent thematic role, which reaches a peak in the final works, and in particular in the laws, Plato's final unfinished work. There it's maintained, in contrast to Aristotle, that play is the best means of education, and a life spent in play, a life spent participating in religious festivals, watching dramas, dancing, singing, making music, is the best life. In the earlier Phaedo, Socrates replies to Sieb's inquiry about his reasons for composing poetry in his prison cell, saying that he was seeking to ensure he properly discharged a divine obligation relayed to him in a recurrent dream, to be diligent and make music. He confesses that he previously thought the message was encouraging him to, uh, to continue going as he was, practicing philosophy, the highest music. However, as insurance, he sought to satisfy the injunction in its ordinary sense by making poems out of Aesop's fables. If music is indeed play, and it is traditionally considered as such, then philosophy is the highest form of play, and the wisest man in all of Greece is divinely enjoined to spend his life in play. Nevertheless, things are not as clear-cut as this simple abstract opposition of values may seem to imply, and it can't be a matter of appealing to Plato in this respect alone to rehabilitate the role of play in education, as if it were simply a matter of playing off one thinker's opinion against another. In fact, Plato's relation to play is profoundly ambiguous. It's this ambiguity in its ambiguity that shows up the possibility of a different relation to education. I want to try to show this but I will begin by indicating the massive use that Plato makes of play. As Fink has argued, Plato's thought oscillates in the element of the playful. Antagonist of the sophists and rival to the poets, artists of the world and great gamers that they are, Plato does nothing but play games with them. Sometimes the game is straightforward, or seemingly so. All readers of Plato are familiar with the literary elements of the works, even if some overlook them. The characterization, the scenes, the images, the use of stories and myths. And it's a matter of doing what the sophists or poets or playwrights do, but better. Take book five of the Republic. Socrates has just described the virtues of his city, and now he undertakes to show that justice is better than injustice by depicting an unjust city. 
Before he can do so, he's interrupted. Polymarchus tugs Adamantus's cloak. They begin to whisper, and Socrates overhears. They tell Socrates they want to know more about his proposals concerning the lives, lives of the guardians. Glaucon and Thrasymachus join in and compel Socrates to speak on pain of his selling them short on his promise to give a full account of life in the city. Their intervention recalls the opening of the dialogue. Socrates was then on his way back to Athens from Piraeus with Glaucon. Polymarchus espies him and sends one of his slaves to stop him. The slave boy grabs Socrates by his coat and tells him to wait. Polymarchus jokingly compels Socrates to come back to his house and thus ensues the discussion of justice. But the difference now is that Socrates no longer has to persuade his interlocutors of his idea of justice or his method. They've been won over. Even Thrasymachus, the sophist, previously Socrates' arch-opponent, pursuing completely different political and argumentative ends, is now on board. This bringing together of the discussants, the defeated Thrasymachus and the noblemen and prospective guardians Adamantus and Glaucon, signals that the dialogue begins anew, here on the basis of an achieved unanimity. Since unanimity is the signal virtue of the polis, which forms a genuine community, what follows occurs at a higher stage of debate. The consensus that must next be won must be a consensus achieved against a different, more significant rival. That rival is comedy. If previously Socrates had declared the need to censure the poets and censor poetry, and if later in Book 10 he'll declare the need to expel artists altogether, here he competes with the dramatist and wants to show that philosophy is superior to poetry. It's capable of doing what the poets do, but it can do it better. Filling out his picture of the just city, Socrates recalls its need of guardians and says women should carry out this function as well as men. But in order for this proposal to work, they must have the same education and training as men. Socrates then says what he's going to suggest will seem absurd and his proposal unworkable. Women are to exercise with men in the gymnasium. This, he says, will elicit the mocking laughter and scorn of the humorists. It's a bad joke. The gymnasium is a place suited to the display of vile, of virile male bodies. However, the offence is, Socrates suggests, superficial, based on convention alone. Other city-states take offence at men exercising naked, and in the past the Athenians did too, but now they do not. There is nothing inherently offensive in it. In truth, then, it's not absurd, and the mocking pretensions of the comedians show that their concern with denouncing the follies of the civic authorities is poorly founded. If, in the assembly women, Aristophanes had satirised the city by presenting the spectacle of women in charge, Socrates can justify it. The comedy is directed at the comedians. For, as Socrates says, only a fool regards as laughable anything other than what is bad. However, as often as Plato plays the same game against the poets and sophists, he transforms the play, changes the game, or the rules of the game, and shifts the stage. In the Apology, for example, on trial for promulgating impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens, Socrates tells the jury that his own life and possessions are of little moment, but not through any disregard or neglect of the self, but precisely because of a proper concern for his self, for others and the city. In this way, Socrates turns his trial around. He no longer defends himself, but the city and its citizens. His fellow Athenians, those that he is addressing at that moment, are in need of care because they neglect themselves and the city by mistaking what is the proper object of concern. They preoccupy themselves without shame in acquiring wealth and reputation and honours, but they do not concern themselves with themselves, with truth and the perfection of the soul. Nevertheless, Socrates does defend himself, disputing the accusations against him, calling as his witnesses the 501 Athenian citizens who are to judge him. Socrates asks them to inform one another whether they have ever heard him talking of such matters as is alleged or in the manner alleged. At this stage of his defence, Socrates appears to be playing the judicial game, doing no more than disputing the attribution of sophistry to himself. However, the manner in which he does it changes the game. 
Ostensibly, Socrates appeals to his jurors as witnesses. Through the identification of the role of witness and juror, the trial is transformed in its nature. It's no longer a question of two litigating parties making their testimonies and conducting rhetorical disputes between, before a third party as the task of evaluating what they say. As Socrates often argues, such a mode of proceeding is utterly worthless in the search for truth. In such three-way disputes, truth matters little, if at all, for what is at stake is establishing a victory over one's opponent, and thus of merely winning over the judge or judges, of accommodating oneself to their preoccupations, which remain unexamined. In contrast, by appealing to his jurors as his witnesses, the stakes of the debate are changed. It's no longer a matter of the antagonistic declarations of competing litigants who expose themselves to the jury, but the possibility of an agreement of two parties on the nature of evidence that is directly present to them. Socrates frequently proposes the elimination of the third party in dialogues. In the Republic, Socrates describes what he calls anti-logic, the setting up of one argument against another and the decision to judge between them. But where what, is at matter, where what is at stake is the identification of the truth of some matter, there is no need to appeal to a third party. For if we examine things together with a view towards bringing us to an agreement, then we shall both be judges and pleaders, he says. But it's not just that the appeal to a third party is unnecessary when it's a matter of identifying the truth about something. As the persistence of Socrates' explicit rejection of them shows, it is in fact necessary to eliminate them, either by excluding them from the outset or by absorbing them into the discussion itself, in order to be able to establish the truth. For all those whose judgment carries upon the matter under discussion must be subject to examination and explicitly pass through interrogation. The preeminent instance of this elimination of the third party is found in Socrates' telling of the allegory of the cave, where it's the reader who is eliminated in what is in effect a performative exemplification of its vision of education. The allegory is held to provide a representation of the idea of a philosophical education. It pictures people as dwelling in a dark underground cave, fettered by chains, witnesses to a shadow show cast by puppets that are carried behind them, the prisoners, but in front of a fire, and the prisoners play naming games among themselves. According to its interpretation, these people represent human beings. They are depicted as being in a state lacking in enlightenment. Moreover, they do not recognize the state they're in. They're ignorant of their condition and held captive by their own ignorance. Philosophy is represented as offering an escape from this condition and having the potential to free humans for their, from their own state of captivity, turning them away from their immediate concerns that captivate them and leading them to an understanding of the truth of their own situation and their own being. Socrates has to recount the idea of philosophical education as an allegory, so that those to whom he tells the story in the dialogue can have some understanding of what he's talking about. But over the character's shoulders, Plato's addressing the readers of the dialogue. The allegory aims to show us, Plato's readers, what, in essence, a philosophical education is, namely a turning around of the soul, its movement away from the given world of appearance towards the world of the forms or ideas. At first glance, and as it's ordinarily understood, it appears that all we, as Plato's readers, need to do is interpret the allegory, substituting for its pictures and images the meaning that they represent. But this can't be quite all there is to it not least because the allegory does not simply make use of the accommodation of metaphor to convey an abstract meaning, but institutes the metaphysics that make sense of metaphor, this transport from the sensible of the material to the abstract and ideal. In other words, if the allegory is to work, it needs to do something more than just picture to us its addressees, the essence of philosophical education. It needs to lead us to that education, it needs to educate us. It must effect an introduction to philosophy. 
it must produce that repositioning of the soul that it pictures in the reader, positioning the reader in the scene it describes. Socrates begins the allegory saying, imagine, picture this, men dwelling in a sort of underground cave. The imperative imagine is indeterminate in its addressee. It addresses both the characters uh, to whom Socrates speaks and also us, the readers of the dialogue. Glaucon, one of the characters with whom Socrates speaks, responds to the picture by saying that it's uncanny and out of place. He, it's an uncanny out of place image that he gives of uncanny out of place people. Glaucon's response is an anticipation of the readers who is initially positioned outside of philosophy. And, they pitch, and the picture is uncanny because it does not immediately accord with the non-philosopher's experience of the world. To Glaucon, Socrates responds by saying that the prisoners are like us. In this exchange is the mechanism that moves or educates the reader to, of the dialogue from outside the scene of philosophy into it or onto it. Like Glaucon, the reader, positioned as a non-philosopher, shocked and disbelieving, looks on the prisoners as uncanny alien beings and denies any kinship with them, only to then realise that in resisting the identification, she acts as would the prisoners themselves. The more that she refuses to see herself in the image that Socrates represents of these strange people, the more closely she resembles them. However, as soon as she realises that her own attitude not only reflects Glaucon's astonishment, but also the hostility of the prisoners depicted in the allegory towards the philosopher and towards philosophy, then she ceases to resemble them. The less that she thinks she is like the people pictured, the more she is. And the moment she sees herself in them, then she distances herself from them. The allegory is testament to the power of play. The third party it eliminates by transposing them onto the scene of philosophy is the reader. Its exemplification of education makes of it more than an example, because in enacting what it describes, it does not so much present a picture of education as bring it to presence. Philippe Lecou-Labard has described the allegory as a myth without any mythic source that lays the foundation of Plato's political project. It is also the self-founding foundation of Plato's educational project. And in the measure that Plato binds education and politics together, this project is the archetypical political philosophical educational project, the project on which and in response to which the West is founded. It's no exaggeration to say that the allegory institutes the space or theatre of our experience that it sets up and stages the educational, political, philosophical scene on which our experience is played out. It plays out our truth. There is, of course, much more that could be said on Plato and play, many more examples that could be given of Plato's plays and ploys, of his delight in masks, of Socrates' delight in masks, of Socratic irony about the sights and sorts of games he presents, the drinking parties, the gyms, the games of seduction, about children's games, the games of the gods, about toys, and so on and so forth. His thought does indeed oscillate in the element of play, as Fink says, for he plays as an artist plays, and at the same time he elevates play to the plane of the philosophical. It's this that renders Plato's relation to play ambiguous. For while he bears witness to the playfulness of the world and what is, he subordinates play to the good and the true. Thus, on the one hand, opposed to Aristotle's opposition of the playful and the serious, Plato nevertheless prepares the ground for Aristotle by regarding humans as not simply the possession of the gods in the Phaedo, but as their playthings in the laws Plato binds play to the good, which is henceforth no longer an essentially innocent activity beyond good and evil, and play plays itself out in the world and becomes itself something essentially worldly. Human life is play, and its playing becomes serious to the extent that its preparation for the accession to the, of the good soul to the true world of the forms. 
In this sense, Plato conjures paideia from paideia, education from play. As it's enacted in the allegory, education is the process that leads humans to the ontological apprehension of what is, and since what is does not immediately give itself, education requires a different disposition towards the truth on the part of the human. Education becomes the shaping of character, a matter of the acquisition of truth by turning the soul away from its immersion in the play of mere appearances towards the true forms. But one might say that because the allegory of the cave shows us the truth of education as it sets up its model for education, for it allows us to ask not what part it might play in education. Sorry, but one might say the allegory of the cave shows us the truth of education as it sets up its model for education. For it allows us to ask not what part it might play in education, but if education unfolds in the element of play, and to affirm the possibility of change, of thinking play not as accessory to truth, but as the very space in which the world comes to presence.